Hey folks, and welcome to this special edition of the Inner Fight podcast. This is podcast number 90, and quite fitting as this special podcast records my experiences in my recent adventure in Oman. My name is Marcus Smith, the founder of Inner Fight, and I want to share with you in the next 30 minutes an adventure that I was on last week down in Oman. This run called the Transomania. It was running for the first time. My personally, my first ultra marathon and what an experience it was. 285 kilometer route, self-supported. What does self-support mean? If you listen to podcast 89, I gave a whole preview into what the race was gonna be about. But just to remind you, 285 kilometers self-supported. We carried with us on our bags and on our backpack 10 kilos of supplies, food, clothes, emergency kits, medical kits, of course, GoPro, iPhone, for all of those media moments for the entire route. Everything you wanted to take had to be carried on your back with the exception of water, which was actually supplied to us every 20 to 25 kilometers. Everything else that we needed to be sufficient for the race, we had to carry in our backpack. That was a whole technical, geeky, logistical operation as well, which is actually part of the fun of the whole race, is getting all the equipment sorted out, researching what works best, and I'll speak about it a little bit later, but we got our equipment pretty much where we wanted it, with the exception perhaps of our shoes. But as I said, I'll go into that in a minute. So self-supported, 285 kilometers. This Transomania race was slightly different from a lot of ultramarathons in that it was a single stage race. Single stage meaning there are no predetermined breaks or camps in the race. So basically, we started the race on the start line, three, two, one, go, see you at the end in 285 kilometers. You have to manage, and this is where it gets complex, interesting, challenging, and actually what really makes the event, you really have to manage everything from A to Z, your hydration, your nutrition, your rest and recovery, and most importantly, your navigational skills. There was markers out and about down the course, but generally you had to manage that. We were given what's called a small road book, which told us the stages from start to finish. So it told us exactly how long the stages were, and it also told us a little bit about the course and the elevation that we'd go through. That's the event. I spoke previously in podcast number 89 about how we prepared for it, and if you want to get more of an idea, just hop back to podcast 89 and you will get all of that information. So the race started Monday the 27th of January. Quite interestingly, the start time was 9 p.m., so 9 at night. We'd already been up that morning. We were actually met on Sunday the 26th in Muscat, Oman, where we were bussed two hours from Muscat down to a beach which was just south of Muscat. We then stayed there from Sunday afternoon, camped there overnight in tents that they put up, reasonable amount of comfort, we were fed poorly. Then we were up at five o'clock on Monday morning, equipment checks to make sure that we had all of the mandatory equipment which ranged from sleeping bag 
to jackets, to whistles, headlamps, and of course, first aid kits. We then had to get checked by a doctor, which was virtually non-existent. The medical checks actually all along the way were quite surprisingly and alarmingly poor. And then we had a briefing, which was 90% in French and lasted over two hours. Luckily, my school days French held up and I understood a little bit of what was being said and the scarce translations made us feel a little bit more comfortable. But still, there was a long, long wait. By the time that was finished, there was still an eight hour wait till 9 p.m. Once we started, the first stage was actually a four kilometer prologue along the beach. In this part, all the runners ran together, which was quite nice and incredibly civilized. It took us about half an hour to get through the 4K because they kept the pace nice and steady. And then at a small break before essentially what was stage one, which was a seven kilometer climb up a thousand meter elevation mountain. In most parts, it was just rubble track. When it got too steep for that, they put in some kind of, it wasn't a tarmac, but concrete slabs so you could actually get up it. Incredibly, incredibly challenging start, but all the same, when the adrenaline was pumping, we were pretty much ready to get into it. And we managed to get to checkpoint one, which was at the top of this climb at 11.45 that evening. So we'd been going two and three quarter hours. Unfortunately, on the first climb, I was with my friends, Martin and Ben, and on the first climb, we actually lost Ben, who was the victim of quite an interesting injury that he actually sustained in the camp before, the night before when we were camping. He went out to go for a wee halfway through the night and cut half of his, the sole of his foot off on a rock, which gave him incredible problems on the first climb. And despite us waiting for him for quite a while, in the end, he just told us to get on and get moving. So 11.45, Monday 27th of January, we're at checkpoint one, having done just 12 kilometers in our quest to, co to cover 285 kilometers. Straight into the checkpoint, the first things that you have to do is refill the water. You have to leave each checkpoint with three, minimum three liters of water. In, in our backpacks, we actually had a three liter bladder and then on the front two 750 ml bottles that we use for electrolytes. So in, fill up and get moving. The next stage to the next checkpoint was a further 23 kilometers. Remember, it's nighttime, it's pitch black, and we're going up hills and down hills. Our strategy from the start was very simple. Where we could see the track, where it was safe to run, we would run. We wouldn't run up any hills, and if the descent was too steep, we also would not run. Basically, to avoid any injury or any kind of problems like that. And also, going uphill, it's a lot more efficient and economical for us to walk uphill. Our heart rate gets too high. We end up burning way too much fuel. Remember, we're just at the start of an incredibly long race. We hit the 35-kilometer mark at checkpoint two at 3.50 in the morning. And in incredibly good spirits... Apart from the fact that when we got to the checkpoint, it was absolutely freezing cold. Luckily, there was warm water there, so we managed to get some warm food inside us, 
put on our jackets and literally we're only at these checkpoints for about 15 to 20 minutes to refill with water, get some food inside us and keep on moving. From checkpoint two, we moved another 25 kilometers to the 60K mark at checkpoint three, which we reached at 8.45 in the morning. By this time, the field was actually getting quite spread out. There was only 50 starters in the race itself and already over 60 kilometers, we'd seen the field spread quite thin. So it was basically Martin and I running, walking, jogging together for most of the way. As I said, unfortunately we'd lost Ben on checkpoint one, but luckily we had some good news that he was actually able to continue in the race and he was not too far behind us. From checkpoint three, we had another climb, which we were told was the last climb. In four kilometers, we climbed 800 meters, which was the steepest climb that we'd done in that shorter time period. The thing about checkpoint four was that we had to reach it in a cutoff time, which puts an incredible amount of pressure on you, both physically and, of course, mentally. It's something that's always in the back of your mind. We had to reach checkpoint four by midday on Tuesday. Thankfully, we reached it by 10.20 in the morning, so we had quite a nice buffer. The next stage to checkpoint five was an 18-kilometer stage. This had been told to us and been called single track, which we understood was a, as it says, a single track through the mountains. What we actually encountered in the next 18 kilometers was something quite, quite different. We had no track in a number of places and literally climbing up and down over mountains. Some of the terrain that we went through was barely manageable. It actually eroded a lot of Mar the, the, the soles of Martin's shoes and the steepness of it in places was absolutely unbelievable. It actually took us six, six hours to do the 18 kilometers. So we we're only traveling at three kilometers an hour between checkpoint four at 64 kilometers into checkpoint five at 82 kilometers. So quite an experience. I didn't really sign up for mountaineering, but they told us it was single track. It was actually no track. And we were lucky we got there in the daytime because a lot of people that got there earlier that morning or later, the ones that actually just made the 12 o'clock cutoff did a lot of this, of, of this part of the course in the dark, which there was only a, a few markers along the way, so lots of people got nicely lost. We're now at the 82 kilometer mark, and we reached there at 4.45 in the afternoon. So we decided that this would be a good place to try and get some more warm food inside us and have a little bit of sleep. We got the food inside us, but it was literally impossible to sleep. Our hearts were absolutely pumping, and Martin and I turned to each other pretty soon after we tried to go to sleep. Remember, there's no tents, there's nothing. You literally laid on the side of the road. We were laid on some rubble, and we said, let's just run to the next checkpoint, which at 6.30, we set off from checkpoint five, and we had a 31-kilometer run to the next checkpoint. This was probably the most challenging part of the course. The first 11 kilometers wasn't. The first 11 kilometers was nice and straightforward. It was actually on a tarmac road and we managed to run the whole of that way. So we got that out of the way quite nicely. 
but it was what happened next that was perhaps the most challenging. At this stage, it was probably about 8.30 in the evening. It was pitch black and we were in the, back in the mountains in a wadi where we literally could not see. Fortunately or unfortunately, the race coincided with the lowest point of the moon. So the moon was absolutely nowhere to be seen anywhere along the track. It was dark as anything for all of the time that we were out there. And that's what was really challenging here. We, we had our headlamps on, but what happened was the markers on the course became incredibly scarce when we entered the mountains, bearing in mind that we had another 20 odd kilometers to go. We're tiring, it's pitch black, and there's no markers. Incredible, incredible challenge. Which means basically we had to slow things right down. We had to walk probably double the distance or at least one and a half times the marked distance because we're moving around the wadi from side to side looking for the markers. They use different forms of markers throughout the course, be it stakes in the ground or they tied some tape around some trees or spray painted rocks where available. So we're looking for three different types of markers all along the way and often going from side to side of the track to try and find these various things. Fortunately at this point the weather wasn't actually terribly cold. We're quite lucky. The weather that we trained in the, in the nights in Dubai was actually quite a few degrees colder than we ever experienced in Oman. However, wandering around a wadi, middle of the night, pitch black, you don't know where you are. From this stage it was now eight, nine o'clock at night. We hadn't slept for over 24 hours given that we'd been up at five o'clock the previous morning. Funny things start to happen and, and this was actually the first time in my life that I've had hallucinations. You have full control of your your mind, you, you, you know it's happening and it's, it's a case of kind of not being able to stop it from happening. What did we see? That's what a lot of people have asked us. What I started to see was Omani children coming out of rocks, Omani children coming out of bushes and actually one of the telling points were when, when Martin and I were approaching the checkpoint, we actually thought that the road in front of us was blocked by a huge, huge bridge and we both turned to each other at the same time and said, oh my goodness, how are we going to get over this bridge and actually it was just a reflection from a floodlight on a farm close by and at that stage we pretty much knew that it was time to get some rest at the next checkpoint, which we, which we duly did. We reached 113 kilometers at 1.25 a.m. on, now we're on Wednesday morning. So we'd been going just over 24 hours, almost 30 hours, and it was time to get some rest. Luckily at this checkpoint, they had a tent to give us some cover, some shelter a little bit from the wind, and also as the dew comes down before sunrise. So we were able to get three hours sleep there, which it's not always perfect sleep, but definitely, definitely helped us. Uh, we got up three hours later, about 4.30, and prepared a little bit of food, packed all of our bags up. Again, every single checkpoint is a process to make sure you've got all of your water in, your bags are packed in the right way. I've got three liters of water in the bladder, I've got 750 by two on my front water bottles just to make sure that everything is in place 
for the next part of the run. The next part from checkpoint six to checkpoint seven was marked as a 21 kilometer stage, which we set off for at 5.15 in the morning. And actually, the first part was beautiful. The sun was just coming up, the mountains in the background, and it was relatively flat trail route. So we're able to do, at this stage, we did quite a lot of run it run walk splits so we'd we'd run for 10 minutes walk for three or four minutes run for 10 minutes until our, our we had a problem actually with with our gps both gps's ran out of batteries we were going to be all right when there was three of us but when we were down to two of us we ran into a bit of trouble having to charge along the way but luckily we had a, a solar panel whilst we didn't have our, our gps watches on we actually were, we used pylons, so electricity pylons along the way, and we are running two pylons, walking one pylon. So there's always, there's always something that you can pick, especially in these situations. You need something to help you out to measure the distance. There was always something available out there that we could pick to run and, and walk a little bit of work as well. This was incredible, this stage. We went for about three hours and saw absolutely no one. It was the second time we had light. The first time we had light in the previous day, we were on the single track and, and got some incredible views. This was the second time we had some light and didn't see anyone just barren, barren land and the two of us. So lots of time to think about stuff, lots of time to chat to each other and to try and make up some jokes, which some of them came out good and some of them not so good. <laughs> We actually stopped about 9.30 that morning when we'd been going about four hours. And because our GPS wasn't working, we didn't know exactly how long we'd run for. And we'd presumed that we'd done the distance and we kept on going around a corner. As Martin kept on saying, this seems like a never-ending story. And the car stopped us and told us to get in the car, to which we bluntly refused. We said, we're not getting in any car. We're running this race. We don't want any time penalty or any penalty for getting in the car. And the organizers turned around and confessed to us that actually there'd been a mistake with the course and the route had been marked wrongly or a lot of the markers had been taken out of the course. So we actually forced to get into the back of the car and luckily we did. As I said, at this stage, we've been going about four hours and we were driven a further five kilometers to the next checkpoint, which was checkpoint seven at 134 kilometers. Luckily, it was great when we got there. We got there at 9.45 and Ben was there. Unfortunately, he'd been kicked out of the race for not making a, a timeline, which was incredibly unfortunate after 82 kilometers. But he was in good spirits and it was obviously very good to see him. And again, into the checkpoint, filled up our water. We actually managed to relax here and I managed to get a, a, a 10 minute sort of power nap in as this was the start of some absolutely brutal terrain. From this point onwards, from the 134 kilometer part point onwards, we would be in the desert exposed to all the elements of the desert. This was it for the next 150 kilometers to the end of the course. So we took our time and to prepare both physically and mentally, make sure we've got those backpacks all stored up. And then at 10.40, we started out. And it probably wasn't the best timing as the sun was absolutely beaming down. And I just remember we'd put a load of sunscreen on our arms because we got a little bit burnt the day before. And after half an hour, I looked down at my hand and the palm of my hand was almost like I'd had it submerged in a bath for about three hours. It was completely wrinkled up and we were just, we, 
liquid was just pouring, pouring out of us. This was a 20 kilometer stage. So a lot of our hydration was based on 20 kilometers. So we'd get through our four and a half liters of liquid within the 20 kilometers, but this one really pushed it to the limit. Actually, after 10 kilometers, right in the middle of the mid midday sun, we had a little break just because we were getting so fatigued. A, from the route itself, B, from the amount of time we'd been up and, and putting our bodies under physical strain, and C, just to get a break from the heat. But of course, in the middle of the desert, there's not much wind. We're almost in a valley here as well, and there is really not too much shelter, so it's literally a five-minute break. The great motivation at this stage was at the 154-kilometer checkpoint, we were going to be in a place where we'd get our drop bag, which was, had more food in it. And also they told us that there was a shower there as well. So we knocked over the next 10 kilometers and pulled into checkpoint 8 at 3.30 in the afternoon. It wasn't quite the shower and the luxuries that we were thinking it was, or maybe that I'd painted a picture in my mind to get me through the last 10 kilometers. As we pulled in there, there was one shower, there was no towels, and it wasn't a very luxurious at all. But you have to crack on in those situations. We're lucky to get anything like that. Again, pulled into the checkpoint, got some food inside us, prepared all our stuff. And it's a lot about maintaining your equipment as well as your bodies as well. So checking our feet were in good shape. At this point, my feet were actually numb from the ankles downwards, so I couldn't feel them too well. And it was quite amusing when I started kicking stuff uncontrollably. Martin thought that was quite a funny factor. I wasn't quite so amused by it, to be honest. Another time that we tried to get some sleep, but literally couldn't. We tried to get our heads down for about an hour, but exactly the same as we'd experienced the night before. And this is the biggest challenge of these single stage races, is that constantly on your mind is the next checkpoint. The next checkpoint for us was another big hit through the desert. The next checkpoint was another load of mental games with ourselves, a lot of, another load of physical games as well, testing our body, pushing our bodies even further. So when you're trying to rest, when you're trying to recuperate, that's all that's going around in your head. It's an incredibly big challenge and something that mentally we're able to deal with, but our hearts just didn't seem to normalize at all. Even laid down trying to sleep, we had heart rate of over 100 beats per minute, which was just way too high. And in the end, you, the, the, the game keeps on playing with you and you just turn around and say, well, I can't sleep. So instead of being sat there not sleeping, you're best to be knocking over kilometers. And that's what we did just after seven o'clock, got our bags on our back, pitch black again and set off down the route. This time it was incredibly challenging. The desert, this was the first time that we'd walked in the desert at the night and the two or three hours off at the checkpoint eight had probably not helped our legs a lot. Our legs seemed to seize up a lot. And as we walked, we got to about three and a half kilometers and the lack of feeling that I had in my feet actually went up my legs further to a point of six kilometers where movement was incredibly difficult. We'd already planned to split up this 30K stage into three lots of 10 and have a little bit of rest. At the 6K stage, we're forced into resting due to un being, literally being un unable to move. And we agreed with each other that we'd take a half an hour rest, which we duly did. We slept instantly. 
woke up half an hour later and movement was still somewhat of a challenge. We therefore took another decision that we'd just not set an alarm for the, for the next rest and just rest until we woke up. This was perhaps a mistake in hindsight, but also showed us what sort of state our body was in. We woke up at 6.30 in the morning. From 9.30 p.m., we woke up at 6.30 in the morning. Disappointed? Absolutely. Because the calculation that we then did was the distance left, which was 125 kilometers, into the hours left, which was just over the 30 mark, meant that we'd ha we would have to walk, run, crawl, somehow get four kilometers an hour nonstop for the next 34 hours which based on th the state of our bodies, based on our fatigue, based on the hallucinations we had, we made a decision that that would just not be possible. That was incredibly hard. It was incredibly hard because we were staring failure in the face. It was incredibly hard because we'd come out to run 285 kilometers and at 160 kilometers, had to make a decision to stop moving and to stop going close to that end line. A lot of lessons from that, a lot of learnings from that as well. And I want to share with you quickly some of the biggest learnings, and I'll come back to the failure in a minute, but the biggest learnings for us really on this was, A, we are not made for ultramarathons. It was quite funny in the camp, before we started, people were coming around and people are getting a bit geeky and probably a bit nervous checking out their equipment. And this guy came and picked up our backpack and said, oh my goodness, what have you got in there? For us to sustain, we had to carry 10 kilos. A lot of these guys out there were carrying three to five kilos maximum. So we had a lot more and our build, these guys are 68 kilos, we're 93 kilos, with pack well over 100 kilos. So our build perhaps isn't suited to ultra, which is fine, that's not really a big deal. We kind of knew that at the start, but if we were to go again, which I'll speak about later, we would definitely look at how we could shave some of the weight off our backpack. Another massive learning, which is a project that we're actually running at the moment, is fueling the body for endurance. For us, for Martin and myself, our diet is largely based on incredibly high fat, low starch, no sugar. The expedition foods that everyone is recommending us to use, plus the electrolyte drinks, which we'd actually tested on a few occasions before, for this prolonged period of 48 hours, started to have issues with our body. And we just didn't feel that we got the necessary fuel from our food. And also in a number of situations, find, found it incredibly difficult to digest our food. We ended up making uh, sachets of food, only eating half of it and throwing it away just because we couldn't stomach it. So a massive learning for us was on food as well, which since I've been back, I've actually done quite a bit of research into this and I, I will be having a few podcast guests coming on the podcast in the coming weeks to tell us more about how they fuel endurance athletes who are fueling their bodies for endurance in a very similar way that we fuel our bodies on a daily basis. Equipment wise, as I said, we learned that perhaps our bags were a little bit heavy, but we're incredibly happy with most of our equipment. 
Shoes-wise, we could have had a different shoe. There's a great shoe out there called the Hocker One. It looks like a moon boot, which is probably more suited to the desert because it has a lot larger surface area. So it's a lot easier. Your foot just doesn't sink as deep into the sand. So a lot easier to get momentum, to get a shuffle or a run on through the desert. So some really awesome learnings then. A lot of, one question that people have asked us a lot is, you know, what was it like? I, I can only sum it up that it was incredible. It was one of the best experiences of my life. I did not regret doing it in one bit. We suffered a lot. We expected to suffer a lot. We learned an incredible amount about our bodies, about how they react. I hallucinated for the first time, which is it's not super cool, but it's also interesting to see how you can control your mind under that situation. We played different games with our minds along the way to get us through different checkpoints. It's the first time I've been awake for 60 hours and slept three hours in within that 60 hours. So what was it like? It was incredible. It was a great experience. It taught me a lot about myself. It taught me a lot about the human body and is, is something that would, did I regret doing it? Not at all. I loved every single moment of it. It was tough when we had to pull out and of course you feel an incredible amount of different emotions, but on the whole, it was awesome. One of the things that people also ask is, what's the recovery period? You cannot start to understand the kind of damage this does to your body. I feel sorry for endurance athletes that really cram in a lot of these things. So the recovery period for me is actually a week of no training. Um, then I'm actually going to be going away for a week of a little bit active relaxation, a little bit of skiing, and then I should be recovered and back to my normal training. Injuries that we've, we've taken with us, once the swelling went down through our feet, it really just a few blisters under the toenails, and we're going to lose a few toenails, but nothing that feels like it's, it's going to hang around for very long. So our preparation, I would say, the way that we prepared our bodies physically was pretty, pretty fine for this. I don't really see, we, we never felt unprepared. We never, it's just the, the continuous exposure to kilometers and also carrying our heavy backpacks that probably got to our bodies in the end. I want to speak a little bit now about the failure. Essentially, we failed, which is excellent. Why? Because when we fail at something, we learn an incredible amount about it. Since we stopped moving, we have non-stop been talking about how we can master these things. Am I ever going to beat the guy that did it in 54 hours? Probably not, and that's not my goal. What I have to dial back to as well within this failure is our objective at the start. Our objective at the start was to have an experience and to test out ultra running because of a goal we've got further down the road. To get to the start line was one thing, and we're incredibly happy with the training and the process of training. Of course, we're massively disappointed, but what we learned through the 160 kilometers we were there will serve us in so many different parts of our physical challenges in future and also, as people say, kind of lessons in life. It was tough. It's always tough to pull the pin on something, especially when you're not at the end. But when we think about it as well, the calculations that we made, the damage that we could have potentially put our bodies through if we'd have kept on going and still missed the time cut off really wasn't worth it. So although it is a failure, 
as I posted recently on my, or just after the event on my Instagram, as Michael Jordan said, he's failed more than a million times. That's why he succeeds. These failures are super important and it, it's given us a massive amount of motivation to continue to train. And this is one of the final questions that I want to answer and it's what I've been asked a lot. Will you do another ultra marathon? The answer is absolutely. Absolutely for a number of reasons. The first reason is our goal is not, was not Transomania. Transomania was a warm-up for us. It was a test for us. Our goal in ultramarathons to, is to run Marathon de Sable across the Sahara, a multi-stage ultramarathon in 2015. Transomania was a warm-up, practice, test run, call it whatever you want to. Some, a lot of people there told us that we're absolutely mad for using it as that because this race was a lot harder, but that's okay. We got to where we got to and we've had that experience of an ultramarathon. So will we do another? Absolutely. Will we do more after Marathon de Sable? As yet, I don't know. To me, ultramarathon running is an incredible sport. I don't see it as an overly healthy sport on a prolonged basis. The amount of time and strain you put on your body through these things is incredible. Even the guys that are 65 to 70 kilos, we're speaking to the winner at the end and he was just so, so vacant when he was explaining to us about his experience. So I think the long-term effects of ultramarathon running is slightly, the research is, needs to be looked at a little bit closer. I cannot really see myself as a compulsive ultramarathon runner, but I kind of think, like I said to a lot of people after I finished my first marathon, a marathon is an experience that you should have. It gives you a lot. You learn a lot about yourself, not only through sport, not only in your body, but lessons you can put into life. What we learned from Transomania we'll take forward into our next goal, into Marathon de Sable in 2015. Those experiences are invaluable. We learned different things at different stages when we failed. We learned different things when we were hallucinating. We were absolutely zero energy and under total fatigue. That mental strength is put to the test. And these are the reasons why sport, events, and challenges like this are things that people every single human being should have on their bucket list. Everyone should be looking to challenge themselves and it's a natural progression. Everyone can run a marathon. That's simple. The time is different. Everyone can finish one, seven, eight or nine hours. To get under four hours is one thing, under 3.30, under three is a completely different thing. The guy that runs a marathon or gets around a marathon course in six hours and that's his ultimate challenge and his ultimate cutoff will also have great learnings. For us, this was about learning things. It was about learning things about our bodies and having an experience. And I want to encourage people when they're looking at their goals and when they're setting out to achieve things or setting out to get the most out of their body, their mind, and their life. Go big. Go really big. Put yourself in these situations. Put yourself in situations that's going to take you totally out of your comfort zone. For us, where CrossFit 
is our norm and f competing in fitness is our norm. To go out and run an ultramarathon is so, so far out of our comfort zone. We did it. We went 48 hours. We went three hours sleep in 48 hours and actually ran four marathons in 48 hours. We didn't complete the race, but the experience and the learnings we got from what we did have been absolutely fantastic. We just want to say as well that we really, really appreciate the support that we've had, definitely from our families, but wider from that, from all of you guys that listen to the podcast, from everyone that has sent us good luck messages through any, any medium that they have. They're all so greatly, greatly received, and I've tried to respond to everyone I can, and if I've missed anyone, I do apologize. The support and knowing that there were so many people behind us when we're out there actually really, really goes a long way. And without you guys, we probably wouldn't have got to the start line and we definitely wouldn't have got to 160K. We're sorry that we didn't make the whole thing, but we hope that, and we're pretty sure that the experiences that we've had and the things that we've learned will make us stronger, will make us better as coaches, and will also make us better next time round. For now, Marathon de Sable 2015 is where we are heading. Of course, CrossFit Games and the CrossFit Open starts in a few weeks as well. We'll get that out of the way first. Thanks for listening, folks. This is the Inner Fight Podcast. Stay tuned to the podcast. Download it to your iPhone, to your devices. I've got some really cool guests coming up in the next few weeks, as well as our weekly radio show where we answer your questions and get back to you on the things that matter the most to you. Take care of yourselves. Thank you.